Section 69 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1, Section 69. Thought and Ideas of the Period, by the Reverend H. F. Stewart, Part 3. The thought of man's fallen nature and consequent alienation from God, which is the starting point of the free will controversy, leads naturally to the thought of atonement through the death of Christ. An atonement involves the theory of the Church and its sacraments, whereby the benefits of the atonement are secured. On all these topics our period throws fresh light. Two of the main aspects under which the earliest Christian writers regarded the atonement were those of a sacrifice to God and of a ransom from evil. They did not specify to whom the price was paid. The third century had tried to remedy their indefiniteness by the unfortunate addition of the words to Satan, and the proposition thus enlarged held its own for nearly one thousand years, until it was discredited by Anselm. The notion that the arch-enemy had overreached himself, and while receiving the ransom, found no advantage in it, inasmuch as Christ's death saved more souls than his life, appealed to the mind of the age, and Gregory of Nyssa's grotesque image of the devil caught by the hook of the deity, baited with the humanity, was taken up and repeated with applause, but not by all. The harrowing of hell in the form current in the 4th century describes deliverance of souls by the triumphant Christ without a word of ransom. Gregory of Nazianzus rejects with scorn the notion of ransom paid to Satan or to God. The views of Athanasius and Augustine are entirely free from bad taste and extravagance. They start from the thought of God's goodness and justice. Goodness required that man should be delivered from the bondage of misery. Justice required something more than mere repentance in order to effect that deliverance, nothing less than the offering up of the human nature which contained the sinful principle. This was achieved by him who assumed human nature and represented man. Thus far Athanasius. Augustine, who is equally insistent on the fact of the sacrifice of Christ, goes deeper than Athanasius into the reason for the particular form that it took and the effects that it wrought. He shares Athanasius's admiration of the divine goodness exhibited in the long-suffering of God and the voluntary humility of the God-man. He is even more jealous for the divine justice. It was just that Satan, who had acquired right over the race, should be satisfied in respect of his claims. But Satan took more than his due, slaying the innocent. It was therefore just that he should be forced to relinquish the sinners in behalf of whom the sinless suffered. The controversy concerning free will and grace also affected the idea of the church and sacraments. Until the rise of Pelagianism, a very wide scope was allowed here to free will. The grace conveyed by the sacraments, which were not to be had outside the church, was considered to be conditioned by the faith and life of the recipient. 
it was tacitly assumed that these factors were within the control of the will. That is to say, grace preceded election. This, according to Augustine's mind, matured by reflection and controversy, was an inversion of the truth. His theory of predestination demanded that election should precede grace. And thus, side by side with his practical belief in an external society in which good and bad, wheat and tares, were growing together, partaking of the means of grace, i.e. the visible church, he conceived the novel idea of a spiritual society of elect, the communion of saints, the invisible church whose members were known to God alone, whether they were within the fold of the external society or not. Of this body it might be affirmed without a trace of bigotry, extra ecclesiam nulla salus. The two conceptions are not kept strictly apart, and the characteristics of the invisible church are constantly transferred by Augustine to the visible church. This body, whose growing nucleus is thus supplied by the invisible church, is the Civitas Dei on earth. Over against it stands the Civitas Terrena, the earthly polity. The two states, separate in idea, origin, purpose, and practice, are yet dependent the one on the other, giving and taking influence. The Civitas Dei needs the practical support of the Civitas Terrena in order to be a visible state. The Civitas Terrena needs the moral support of the Civitas Dei in order to be a real state, for a Civitas only exists on a basis of love and justice and by participation in the sole source of existence, which is God. The City of God is the only real Civitas, gradually absorbing the Civitas Terrena and borrowing its authority and power in order to carry out the divine purpose. Magistrate and legislator become the sons and servants of the Church, bound to execute the Church's objects. We have here the germ of the medieval theory of the Church as the kingdom of God on earth, but it must be noted that Augustine does not start with the assumption of identity, does not use church and kingdom of God as interchangeable terms, despite the assertion Ecclesiae iam nunc est renium, which he is the first of Christian writers to make. Even in this phase, he does not mean that the church is actually the kingdom, but only that it is so potentially. The full and perfect realization he reserves until the consummation of all things. From the earliest days of Christianity, the words sacrament and mystery were borrowed to denote any sacred, secret thing, and especially the means of grace. The number of these was not distinctly specified, for Christians, believing that the Church was the storehouse of unlimited grace, were not careful to count the means. Two, however, stood out preeminent, baptism and the Lord's Supper. With regard to the doctrine underlying these two, it may be said that it was in the 4th and 5th centuries essentially what it had been before. No doubt Christian experience and the struggle with paganism and heresy tended to produce explanations, but the main thought was always simply that of life bestowed and life maintained. The early believers had not asked how, but the question could not but arise 
and that rather in connection with the Eucharist than with baptism. For the water of baptism did not invite speculation to the same degree as did the bread and wine, and their relation to the body and blood of Christ. Not that baptism was ever regarded merely as a ceremony of initiation. It was the fear of losing, through post-baptismal sin, the grace conveyed by baptism that in our period kept many from the font. Other causes, such as negligence, reluctance to forego the world, and various fancies and superstitions, combined to render baptism, as in Constantine's case, the completion rather than the commencement of Christian life. Such delay was not the intention of the Church, and the necessity of checking slackness, together with the Western doctrine of prevenient grace helping the first step Godward, brought about a strict insistence on the necessity of baptism and readiness, in the West at least, to allow the baptism of heretics, provided the right form of words was used. But both wisdom and generosity were shown by the refusal to tie down the operation of the Holy Spirit to ritual action, and by the admission of faith, repentance, or martyrdom as substitutes for formal baptism when this could not be had. It must not be forgotten, however, that Augustine, when he found the Donatists proof against persuasion, advocated a resort to violence. Coge intrare. The Eucharist was more obviously mysterious, and at a time when the rite was attended by many who were more conscious of its mysterious experience than of any effect it might have upon life, speculation was active, and teachers labored to assist inquiry by analogy and illustration, which often grew to something more. Thus from Gregory of Nyssa came an impulse which finally developed into the doctrine of transubstantiation, not that Gregory means to teach this. The passage in his works containing the germ is not a definition. His style is highly imaginative, and the Oratio Catechetica is full of similes. One of these is borrowed, but without hesitation, from physiology. Gregory draws a parallel between the change of bread and wine by digestion into the human body and the change of the sacramental elements, by consecration, into Christ's immortal body. Using Aristotelian terms, he says that in each case the constituents are arranged under a fresh form. This is not transubstantiation, but transelementation, metastoiheusis. The image commended itself, and it was repeated and elaborated by other writers, until at length the complete identification of the bread and wine with the body and blood of Christ became the authoritative doctrine of the Eastern Church. The Roman doctrine of transubstantiation has points of resemblance with Gregory's illustration, but it is expressed in terms of a different and later philosophy. Gregory teaches a change of form, a schoolman a change of both material and form, which they explain by the help of the distinction between substantia and accidentia. The great contribution of the age to the doctrine of the sacraments is the view that in a real sense they continued the process of the Incarnation. Human nature first became divine in the person of Christ by union with the Divine Word, and subsequently and repeatedly in the person of the individual believer through union with Christ in the sacraments. 
This is the teaching of both East and West, as represented by Hilary and Gregory of Nyssa. As in baptism the soul is joined to Christ through faith, so in the Eucharist is the body, being transformed by the Eucharistic food, joined with the body of the Lord. Thus the special purpose of the Incarnation, viz. the deification of men, is being constantly fulfilled. The language in which this noble conception is expressed, especially in the East, tends to encourage a superstitious reverence for the outward symbols, which the Greek fathers frequently had occasion to correct. Augustine earnestly desired that the Civitas Terrena should help to establish the Civitas Dei, and that the Civitas Dei should leaven with moral influence the Civitas Terrena. It remains for us to see how far his dream was realized. In other words, how far the Christian empire affected the church and was in turn affected by it. The influence of the empire upon the eternal and external structure of the church has been felt from the first. Thus, the development of the monarchical episcopate was doubtless due in great measure to the example of Roman law, which required all corporate bodies to have a representative. The mark of Roman law is also seen in the Western doctrines of free will, sin and its transmission, and atonement. The language in which these problems are stated is the phraseology of the courts, and recalls the Roman penal code, theory of contract and delict, debt, universal succession, etc. The effect of civil order is seen in certain places of church administration, which though themselves practical, are the expression of underlying theory, and therefore call for notice here. 1. The Church was organized in dioceses, with exarchs or patriarchs, provinces, with metropolitans or primates, and cities, with bishops, much in the manner of the empire. This arrangement was not directly imposed upon the Church by the empire, nor did it exactly correspond to the imperial distribution. But the sudden rise of the See of Byzantium from a subordinate position into the next place of honor after Rome proves that civil importance was a factor in determining ecclesiastical precedence. 2. The bargain proposed by Nestorius to Theodosius II, Give me the world free from heretics, and I will give thee heaven, was in a fair way of fulfillment. The emperors, from being foes, became powerful friends of the church, able to give the material support that Augustine desired. Constantine would no doubt gladly have enjoyed the same controlling relation towards his adopted religion as he held towards the religion of which he and his successors till Valence remained chief pontiffs. But the church was too strong for that, and the rescript of A.D. 314, in which he declared that the sentence of the bishops must be regarded as that of Christ himself, shows what their power was, and hints what they might have done with it. Still he was allowed to style himself, perhaps in jest, Episcopos ton ectos. And he set the example of convoking general councils, the decrees of which were published under imperial authority, and thus acquired a political importance. Those only who accepted their rulings could enjoy the rights of state favor, 
and civil penalties were presently threatened in the interest of civic peace against all who declined to acknowledge them. 3. Pagan teachers, priests, and doctors were already exempt from certain civil charges on the ground of professional usefulness. To this list Constantine added first the African and later all Christian clergy, and them he allowed to engage in trade untaxed because they could give their profits to the poor. Clerical families and property were likewise excused all the ordinary responsibilities of curiales. Many citizens sought this immunity from taxation, even after the state, fearing the loss of useful service, had forbidden the ordination of curials. And the church came to welcome the exclusion of the well-to-do from her ministry as a protection against unworthy ministers, as she also did the removal of exemption from trade taxes, for the age was averse from any interference with the spiritual duties of the clergy. But the fact that privileges were withdrawn from the heathen priesthood and bestowed on the clergy enhanced the position of the latter as a favored class. 4. The church was distinguished as a corporation capable of receiving donations and bequests. Earlier confiscations and restorations proved that the church had held property long before the time of Constantine but Constantine bestowed upon it a more extensive privilege than was known to any heathen religious foundation, whereas the latter could only be endowed under special circumstances and with few exceptions never acquired the right to receive bequests, the sacred and venerable Christian churches might be left anything by anybody. Abuse of the privilege gradually led to its withdrawal under Valentinian III, and Christian writers deplore the cause more keenly than the result. But the growing wealth was, as a rule, generously applied to philanthropic works started by the Church, and Augustine was justified in calling upon churchmen to remember Christ as well as their sons. They were the more likely to listen, since the old Jewish belief that alms win heaven had taken root and sprung up in the doctrine of merit. 5. The Church secured another prerogative which was fraught with serious consequences in the establishment of episcopal courts as an integral part of the secular judicial system with final jurisdiction in civil cases. But it had analogy with the Roman institution of Recepti Arbitri, an extrajudicial arrangement allowing the civil authority to step in and enforce the decision of the arbitrator. At a time when, as we learn from Salvian and Emianus, the courts were monuments of justice delayed and of chicanery, it was no small boon to be allowed to carry a civil suit to the arbitration of a bishop whose equitable decision had the force of law. The early history of this remarkable legislation is obscure and complicated, but it clearly contained in germ the clerical exemption from criminal procedure which formed one of the most difficult problems in medieval politics. The episcopal jurisdiction underwent considerable limitations, and bishops lost their position of privilege before the law, but appeal to the episcopal court became a tradition in the church. 6. There are other indications of the great influence acquired by the bishops in the administration of justice. 
into their hands passed the right of intercession, formerly exercised in behalf of clients by wealthy patrons and hired rhetoricians. One of their duties, according to Ambrose, was to rescue the condemned from death, and he himself was active in its discharge. So Basil interceded for the unfortunate inhabitants of Cappadocia at the partition of the province in A.D. 371. So Flavian of Antioch, with better success, stood between his flock and the emperor, not unjustly irritated by the riot of 387. 7. Closely connected with episcopal intercession was the rite of asylum, transferred from heathen temples to Christian churches, which afforded protection to fugitives, pending the interference of the bishops. One out of many instances, and that the most romantic, is the case of the miserable Eutropius, A.D. 399, who benefited by the privilege which he had himself in the previous years sought to circumscribe. Such are some of the points at which the empire touched the church. The effect of the church upon the empire may be summed up in the word freedom. Obedience to authority was indeed required in every department of public and private life, provided that it did not conflict with religious duty. But the old despotic attributes were gradually removed. The Roman patria potestas suffered notable relaxation, and children were regarded no longer as a peculium, but as a sacred charge upon which great care must be bestowed. In a word, authority was seen to be a form of service, according to God's will, and such service was freedom. This great principle found expression in many ways, and first in respect of literal bondage. The better feeling of the age was certainly already in favor of kindness towards the slave, Stoicism, like Christianity, accepted slavery as a necessary institution, but no one ever more clearly discerned its baneful results than Seneca, and Seneca was still listened to. It is in his words that Praetextatus in Macrobius's Saturnalia pleads the slave's common humanity, faithfulness, and goodness against the old feeling of contempt of which there were still traces in Christian and pagan writers. It was, however, not from Seneca, but from Christ and St. Paul, that the fathers took their constant theme of the essential equality of men, before which slavery cannot stand. Not only do they establish the primitive unity and dignity of man, but seeing in slavery a result of the fall, they find in the sacrifice of Christ a road to freedom that was closed to Stoicism. They offered a more effective consolation than the philosophers, for they pointed the slave upward by recognizing his right to kneel beside his master in the Lord's Supper. Close upon the church's victory follows legislation more favorable to the slave than any that had gone before. Constantine did not attempt sudden or wholesale emancipation, which would have been unwise and impossible. Nor is there any sign that he recognized the slave's moral, intellectual, or religious needs, but he sought to lessen his hardships by measures which, with all their inequalities, are unique in the statute book of Rome. He tried to prevent the exposing of children, though he could not stop the enslavement of foundlings. He forbade cruelty towards slaves, in terms which are themselves an indictment of existing practices. 
he forbade the breaking up of servile families. He declared emancipation to be most desirable. He transferred the process of manumission from pagan to Christian places of worship in a way and with words that testify to his view of it as a work of love belonging properly to the church. But the church was not content to influence the lawgiver and preach to master and slave the brotherhood of men and the duties of forbearance and patience. She struck at all the bad conditions that encouraged slavery. The stage and the arena had always been the objects of her hate as hotbeds of immorality and nurseries of unbelief. Attendance there was forbidden to Christians as an act of apostasy. Julian caught the feeling and forbade his priests to enter theaters or taverns. Yet Libanius, Julian's friend and mentor, defends not only comedy and tragedy, but even the dance, exalting it above scripture as a school of beauty and a lawful recreation. But dancing, as Chrysostom points out, was inseparable from indecency, and far from giving the mind repose, only excites it to base passions. The ban of the church, accordingly, was proclaimed against the ministers of these arts upon the public stage. It followed them into private houses when they went to enliven wedding or banquet, forbidding them baptism so long as they remained players. This apparent harshness, which can be matched from civil legislation, was in reality a kindness. The actor's state was, at this time, incompatible with purity, and the church sought to deliver a class enslaved to vice. A notable victory was won when it was ruled that an actress who asked for and received the last sacraments should not, if she recovered, be dragged back to her hateful calling. The only way to escape from it, in any case, lay in the acceptance of Christianity. As the theater gratified low tastes, so the arena stimulated tigerish instincts. Both Pliny and Cicero apologized for it as being the proper playground of a warrior race. It certainly held the Roman imagination. The story of Olypius, a friend of Augustine, is well known, whom one reluctant look during a gladiatorial show enslaved completely to the lust for blood. Attempts to suppress the shows were made, doubtless under Christian influence. They met with little response, except in the East, where the better spirits, like Libanius, repudiated them as a Roman barbarity unworthy of a Greek. But the action of Constantine in forbidding soldiers to take part in gladiatorial shows, and of Valentinian in exempting Christians from suffering punishment in the arena, prove that earlier regulations were a dead letter. The show which Olypius attended was at Rome in AD 385. Symmachus, as urban prefect, speaks with pride of the games he gave, and when Saxon captives, with whom he had hoped to make a Roman holiday, committed suicide in prison, he had to turn to Socrates as his example for consolation. The sum spent on these games is an index of the wealth of noble Romans. The same Symmachus spent 80,000 pounds on the occasion of his son's praetorship. The festival given in the reign of Honorius lasted a week and cost 100,000 pounds. Emianus, Marcellinus, and Jerome paint the same picture. And even when their charges have been discounted by the more sober pages of Macrobius, it is still clear that the dying Roman civilization 
was marked by a general luxury and self-indulgence. The church could not stop this waste. Sumptuary laws was outside her competence. But leaders practiced and encouraged simplicity and frugality, and reproved the tendency towards ecclesiastical display. Jerome meets the argument that lavish hospitality would strengthen the hand of clerical intercessors by answering that judges would honor holiness above wealth and simple clergy more than luxurious ones. Golden mediocrity doubtless had its devotees. There were many Christian men of the world to whom monasticism was a riddle, as it was to Ausonius, whose prayer was, Give me neither poverty nor riches. But better than moderation was renunciation of the world, and the ascetic element of early Christianity, reinforced by the example of all exponents of high thought, led many to turn their faces from the luxury around them and flee to the desert. To those who remained behind, the Christian writers tried to teach the view of poverty as a probation and of wealth as a trust, the mutual dependence of rich and poor, and the lesson that men should be one in heart as they are one in origin. Caritas tua in uno incommunicabili unum sumus. They frequently recall the communion recorded in the Acts, and now that change of conditions had rendered community of goods impossible, a new means of applying the principle was sought. First in the feasts of charity and regular collections for the poor, in the private munificence of the bishop, or in a proportionate and elaborately organized distribution under the bishop of church revenues. These, by dint of careful administration and continual accessions, grew to an immense property, till by the fifth century the church had become the greatest landowner in the empire. In general, promotion to a bishop's stool meant merely entry into a large fortune. Make me bishop of Rome and I will become a Christian, was Praetextatus's reply to Damasus, and it reflects the public opinion. Ammianus Marcellinus waxes scornful over the episcopal splendor and extravagance at Rome, but he qualifies or points his sarcasm by the admission that there were bishops in the provinces who, moderate in eating and drinking, simple in dress, show themselves worthy priests of the deity. Instances of fine and unselfish philanthropy are equally common in the theory held by great churchmen and in their practice. Perhaps the most striking justification of the common claim that bishops are the proper and recognized helpers and guardians of the poor, the widow and the orphan, is found in their readiness to convert the communion plate into money for the distressed. It is better to save living souls than lifeless metals. The ornament of the sacraments is the redemption of the captives, are the words with which Ambrose defended himself against the charge of sacrilege. Refuge from the tax-burdened world was afforded by the monasteries, which are too often judged not by the circumstances which called them into being, but by the abuses which attended their decay. And side by side with the strictly religious houses, there sprang up innumerable charitable institutions, orphanotrophia, ptocotrophia, nasacomia, gerontocomia, brephotrophia, intended to relieve the wants of every class and every age, and not merely those of citizens, as had been the case in heathen Rome and Athens. 
Not the least of the debts which the world owes to 4th century Christianity is this invention of open hospitals. Julian felt its power and summoned his followers to imitate in this respect the hated Galileans. But with superior organization, the old spirit of voluntary charity waned. Individual effort disappeared. A steward discharged the philanthropic activities of the bishops. Deaconesses waited less on the poor and more on the worship of the church. Charity became less discriminating and aped the pagan largesses. Begging now finds a place in the statute book, and the first law against mendicancy was issued by a Christian emperor, Valentinian II. Yet the church sought to meet this evil also by restoring labor to honor. Slavery had degraded it, and commerce had always been despised at Rome. Before the eyes of an idle and unprofitable multitude was now displayed the example of Christ and his apostles, workmen all. An example which was actually followed in the monasteries, where the perfect life joined prayer with work, both to charitable purposes. The Pahomian houses, as self-sufficing communities, provided regular work, not merely as a penitential exercise, but as an integral part of the life. Basil would have his ascetics despise no form of labor. Augustine reproved African monks who were deserting work for prayer. Sloth was assuredly no inmate of the cloister then, though the work done cannot be described as always useful or rational. But the efforts of Christianity in behalf of the weak are nowhere seen more clearly than in the uplifting of women. The Church gave them a place of consideration in her ministry, not, however, the privilege of preaching or administering the sacraments, though a deaconess was allowed to assist in the baptism of women. Besides the carefully regulated orders of deaconesses, virgins, and widows, there arose, towards the end of the fourth century, classes of widows and virgins of higher rank who gave themselves to voluntary work under church auspices, without taking regular vows or living in communities. Such were Jerome's friends and correspondents, Paula and Eustochium. In the East, where this class attained a position of greater prominence than in the West, the Roman spirit was averse from the public ministry of women. They approximated to an order and were finally assimilated to the deaconesses. Outside the ministry of the church, women were made the subject of special legislation. Constantine was austere in morals. The age was loose. The antique ideal of the Roman nation had long since disappeared. Constantine determined to restore it. The severity of his measures against adultery and rape shows his zeal in the cause of morality, while the terms of those which regulate the relations of women to the courts exhibit his care for their good fame and the matris familiae maestas. Thus to spare their modesty, wives were forbidden to appear in court at all. His tenderness is also seen in his forbidding a son to disinherit his mother, and in the exemption of widows from the penalties visited on coiners. On the other hand, there are signs, both in contemporary legislation and literature, of unchristian and brutal contempt for the women who had most need of protection. Tavern keepers and barmaids are set free from the operation of the laws against adultery. Quote, 
since chaste conduct is only expected of those who are restrained by the bonds of law, and immunity must be extended to those whose worthless life had set them beyond the pale of the laws. End quote. Again, it is difficult to understand the mind of Augustine, who loves his natural son Adiodatus as David loved the child of Bathsheba, and who yet has regret but no word of pity for the mother whom he cast off. So Sidonius Apollinaris, the aristocratic bishop of Auvergne, is very lenient towards the irregularities of a young noble, and quite heartless towards the victim. But in the latter case it must be remembered that the Christianity of Sidonius was not very deep, that the girl was a slave, and that for all their good intentions and growing instincts of humanity, the church and churchmen did not yet regard slaves as free. And in the former, that concubinage, i.e. the association of one man with one woman, was recognized by Roman law and by the Council of Toledo, A.D. 400, and hardly differed from wedlock except in name. What is astonishing to modern notions in the case of Augustine and his mistresses is not so much his own conduct as the line taken by his friends and the saintly Monica, and too readily adopted by himself. Something like a mariage de convenance was projected for him while he was still attached to a woman whom there is no reason to suppose unworthy to become his wife, in the hope that as soon as he was married he might be washed clean in saving baptism. Monica was indeed more concerned by his Manichaeism than by his irregular life. The incident reveals a flaw in a great character. But if that were all, it would have no place here. It is of value to our purpose as illustrating the view of the relation between the sexes held at this time, and as a witness to the vastness of the task that lay before the Church in purifying and uplifting society. End of section 69